Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a savvy topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you news this week from New Zealand, Israel, Chile, Brazil, Argentina, Germany, the United States, and a see you in hell that's the celebration of a dead fascist from Italy. Going to start out with New Zealand. It turns out that as a result of New Zealand's parliamentary elections earlier this year, the Conservative Party, which won the election, does in fact need the right-wing populist New Zealand First Party to secure its electoral position and be the ruling party. This means a return to government for the populist right-wing, but not exactly racist, New Zealand First Party. Remember, their leader is actually a Maori man, the primary indigenous group in New Zealand. This follows years of left-wing governance in the country, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. In Israel, a member of Benjamin Netanyahu's ruling cabinet, specifically the uh, communications minister, has advocated for new rules in the Israeli policing system, which would allow him to direct police to arrest civilians in Israel, seize their property, and remove them from their homes if they have, according to news stories, quote, spread information that could harm national morale. This is especially worrying as domestic support wanes for Netanyahu and his government during its invasion of the Gaza Strip. In Chile, the conservatives who are creating a new constitution for that country have submitted a new draft of it. This new draft comes after the failure of the previous progressive draft of the new Chilean constitution. The original progressive draft of the Chilean constitution, which would have been the country's first new constitution since the collapse of the Pinochet regime, this con the original constitution of Chile under the Pinochet regime was written in 1980 and it remains in effect in Chile today. The new progressive version, which was defeated, had a lot of protections for indigenous people. It protected the rights of women. It protected multiple different human rights. It would have been one of the most progressive in the world and was defeated in that country. The conservatives have drafted a new potential constitution, and this one is a much more conservative document. It doesn't mention indigenous rights whatsoever, despite indigenous people being an extremely large part of the Chilean population. And it also says that life begins at conception, which could challenge that country's pretty meager abortion rights protections so far. Currently in Chile, abortion is essentially only legal in the cases of rape and sexual assault, incest, and if the mother's life is in danger. Socialist president of Chile, Gabriel Boric, has pledged to hold a plebiscite, so an up-down vote, on this constitution as well. If this one fails, then they're going to go back to the drawing board again? Across Brazil and Argentina, there have been many major raids against neo-Nazi organizations in the last several months. These raids have found that organizations like the Hammerskins and Atomwaffen, U.S. and European groups that are now increasingly international, have staked out major presences in these South American countries. Brazil, as ever, is taking this a lot more seriously than the United States is. The Brazilian ministers in charge of this investigation have said that basically they're just going to go after anybody who espouses Nazism or neo-Nazi perspectives. This, of course, is at least partly because Brazil is governed by a political party and a political coalition that emerged during a right-wing military dictatorship which had connections with the extreme right, with the extreme politicized right, although the right-wing military government of Brazil was not itself particularly fascistic. Moving on to Argentina, 
In particular, the Argentine presidential candidate, Javier Millet, has said fairly openly at this point that he is going to free or help get out any genocidal perpetrators of Argentina's last dictatorship if he is elected president. This has become increasingly clear that he is just going to kind of release people from prison, enact amnesties for anybody who is currently still alive. This would be the latest in several steps back and forth in terms of granting amnesty or prosecuting and imprisoning the people who were involved in Argentina's genocidal military government during the 1970s and 1980s. Finally, in Germany, a branch of the AFD, that is uh, the alternative for Germany, translated, which is Germany's extreme right-wing party, has been classified as an extremist group in that country. This could pose some issues for the AFD's electoral prospects, which have been increasingly powerful as of late. The AFD is one of the most powerful of the extreme right-wing parties in Europe. It is not an openly fascist party. However, it is an anti-immigrant party. It's an anti-queer party. It's a populist party. It is broadly critical or was broadly critical of COVID-19 restrictions, things like that. And so that really puts it in line with, you know, something more like Viktor Orban rather than like, you know, with the Adam Waffen or like, you know, an actual fascist organization. However, their being classified as an extremist group is an indication that the, that the German government, which, you know, takes the classification of neo-Nazis pretty seriously, it's an indication that the German government is seeing them as bridging that gap, which is definitely not good for them. It means that they have a potential to be classified as electorally non-viable in the future by the German state. Moving on to the United States, and we got a couple news bits that are about Donald Trump. The first is that Donald Trump is continuing to face his fraud trial in New York. Donald Trump has claimed that this is electoral interference, you know, the very existence of this trial at all, the fact that he is on trial for anything whatsoever. And he thinks that he should not be tried for anything at all while he is running for president. That's why he announced his run for president, you know, extremely early, much earlier than any of the other candidates. This fraud trial involves his family because it involves not just Donald Trump as the political operative. It also involves Donald Trump as a businessman. This means that his children, who are deeply involved in his business practices, such as Ivanka Trump and her two older brothers, have been taking the stand in this trial. They have all made serious missteps in terms of essentially accidentally acknowledging that they were aware of this fraud as it was going on. As a reminder, this fraud consists of Donald Trump massively inflating the value of his properties when he is seeking loans to maintain them, and then conversely deflating their value when it came time to pay taxes. In many respects, this is just sort of like what Donald Trump says that he does, right? That he just cheats the system and makes a shit ton of money. This is why I don't really think that this particular trial is going to lose him a lot of supporters because they'll just look at him as being the business savvy person that he's always claimed to be, right? This is part of that. I think, is kind of how he's presenting himself. At the same time, being convicted of a major, you know, crime and potentially facing the consequences of that crime is probably not going to help him at all. But speaking of crimes, Donald Trump has said pretty openly, and his advisors have corroborated him here, that he will directly attack his opponents if he is reelected. He plans to invoke, or at least is looking at invoking the Insurrection Act on day one, you know, on Inauguration Day, that would essentially grant him powers that the United States president has not wielded since like World War II times, 
to imprison political dissidents, to use the military to crack down on civilian protests, things like that. Donald Trump has also said that he is going to prosecute his political opponents, including potentially Joe Biden and also former members of his staff that have testified against him or have said that he was, you know, planning to stage a coup when he was planning to stage a coup. Essentially, his plan is to retaliate for the legal troubles that he has been in while out of office. This plan is related to the 2025 project that comes out of the Heritage Foundation, a plan to revamp the executive branch in the result of a Donald Trump presidency. But this is more directly about authoritarian retaliation, right? His plan is to get back at the people who are getting back at him after his loss in 2020. Moving on to some good news, we got a couple pieces of good news. The state of Ohio had an election this week which ultimately ended up enshrining abortion access into their state constitution. Additionally, in other elections throughout the United States, the Democrats have won big against the Republicans, especially in states where abortion rights were more or less on the ballot. Of course, this is extremely good news. It means that the Democrats are doing relatively well against Donald Trump and his acolytes, and that abortion access and access to Reproductive health care and trans health care are increasingly available, or at least not decreasingly available in the United States. At the same time, this week, a poll was released that showed that Donald Trump was winning against Joe Biden in five out of six extremely important battleground states, including Michigan and Florida and Nevada, states that both of them basically need to win in order to win against the other one. This produces a strange situation in which the Democrats have won actual elections, but Donald Trump is winning the polls. Does that mean that the polls were conducted poorly? We've seen many of our fair share of bad polling in the 21st century, right? In Brexit, in the Donald Trump elections, et cetera, et cetera. Or does it mean that this is like strange off-term voting in these elections that the Democrats have won? That means that like only the ideologues came out and we're just going to have to wait and see about that. Some more good news, Moms for Liberty, a sort of fascist at light uh, women's led organization that deals with trying to police gender policies and gender politics in schools, did not sweep school boards throughout the United States. They ran in a bunch of school board elections. They won a lot of them, but lost a lot of them that they had hoped to win. This was supposed to be a big victory for them, but instead it's a sort of complicated one. Both of these things, the fact that Ohio has enshrined abortion rights in its state constitution and the relative lackluster results for the Moms for Liberty, indicates that the message that the Republicans are pushing, one of severe gender conformity, isn't really connecting with voters in the way that they wanted it to. At the same time, that doesn't mean that they're going to back down on it. And it also doesn't mean that it's an ineffective tool for winning the 2024 presidential election especially if they continue to follow through with voter suppression methods that have been relatively successful for the Republicans since the 21st century. Steve Bannon, Donald Trump's former chief of staff and sort of former like aide-de-camp advisor person, is in trial this week for contempt of court. This case is dealing with his ignoring an investigative House committee's subpoena, specifically the January 6th investigative committee that was investigating Donald Trump's attempted coup. Bannon, like many other people who worked for Donald Trump, was subpoenaed by this committee. Bannon decided that he was going to ignore it. He was thereby convicted of contempt of court. He is appealing that decision. 
and which would have resulted in fines, and which could have resulted in months in jail. His defense is essentially that this doesn't matter, and that he wasn't given an opportunity to defend himself, and his defense in the case, saying that he didn't think that he could be subpoenaed, was about executive privilege. Despite the fact that he didn't work for the Trump administration while he was being subpoenaed, and that he didn't work for the Trump administration at the time that the January 6th insurrection coup happened. Finally, this news is sort of combo U.S. and Panamanian news. A United States citizen, a resident of Panama, has shot two climate protesters dead in the street in Panama. These climate protesters were protesting against a large open-air copper mine, which would have been the largest one in Central America. Due to Panamanian law, this man, this murderer, cannot go to jail because he is too old to go to jail. Panamanian law prevents people from going to jail once they have passed a certain age. Instead, the greatest penalty that he could receive if he is prosecuted for these attacks is house arrest. This guy, the, the murderer, worked for some like shady money laundering tripes in Panama, which is a hotbed of money laundering in Central America and around the world. And right-wing people and people who just like don't like protesters in general are really celebrating this guy. And they say that he should get a medal because those people were blocking traffic and therefore deserved to die in the minds of right-wing cranks. Finally, going to close out this week like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week I'm talking about Ines Donati, an Italian female fascist icon. Donati was born in 1900 on the sort of east-central coast of Italy to a family of middle-class craftspersons. She moved to Rome in 1918 for her education. She attended a Catholic school, like many Italians would have at the time, and there fell into the emerging right-wing fascist nationalist community. She quickly gained a reputation as a real firebrand, an activist, and an extremely violent young woman. She spent her time in Rome joining various youth groups, such as the Italian versions of the Girl Guides, which would eventually become the Girl Scouts. But then she moved on to joining a bunch of fascist youth leagues, she ultimately joined the first fascist organization that Mussolini created in 1919 and spent the next several years working with fascist groups on their electoral efforts. She specifically was involved in the extremely pivotal 1921 electoral season, which saw the fascists facing off against the communists and the socialists, not just in the ballot box, but in the streets. She did both of these things. She campaigned electorally, but also participated in violent attacks on socialist and communist leaders. This resulted in some jail time on her part and also in retaliatory strikes by socialists and communists, which landed her in hospital for quite some time. These attacks, however, were not the cause of her death. Instead, it was a natural cause. In 1922, she was diagnosed with tuberculosis, which in the early 20th century was essentially a death sentence. She didn't let this stop her participating in the fascist rise to power, however. She was one of the only women who directly participated in the March on Rome and did so violently, reportedly carrying two pistols all the time. During the March on Rome, she met Mussolini, who apparently, at least supposedly, had heard about her reputation and thought that she was a great poster child for female, violent, and exciting fascists. She lived just long enough to see the fascists win and to seize their power in Italy. She joined the Black Shirts, the sort of uh, fascist paramilitary organization that was the 
leading paramilitary group in Italy at the time. She would have really been going places in fascist politics, except for her death in 1924, November the 3rd, of tuberculosis. She eventually became a propaganda piece for the Italian fascists until the end of the war. So, Enestinati, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Instead of my Patreon, check out Medicine Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, The Red Cross, The Red Crescent, or another charity. You can get in touch with me at 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com. That's spelled out in all one word. I'm on Twitter at Hist of the Right. That's H-I-S-T of the Right and Fascism 15. I'm on Blue Sky at 15-M-I-N-S-O-F-F-A-S-C. That's 15 Mins of Fash. Right. Thanks very much. And I will talk to you next week.